Welcome to Mission 150, the podcast that tells stories from 150 years of Seventh-day Adventist mission to the world. To find out more about the mission of the Adventist Church today, go to AdventistMission.org. That's AdventistMission.org. We're so glad to have you with us again on Mission 150. I'm David Trim. And I'm Sam Nevis. Let's talk. Let's talk, Sam. In the past, David, we talked about stories that we normally don't talk about. So if people want to watch those previous episodes where uh, we have stories of missionaries that are not normally uh, talked about. Today, we're going to venture into that a little bit more. Yes. Um, Some people have the idea that the mission is practically finished. Right. And we can't blame them for it because usually what we publish are the great success stories of miraculous large-scale baptisms in different parts of the world. So as far as that they're concerned, sometimes they feel that, haven't we just, have we, haven't we finished? Haven't we been to all the countries? Right. And that's not the case. The mission challenges that we have today are far exceed our capacity to accomplish them. Absolutely. Our human, if by human standards, what we're trying to do is impossible. And it's always been impossible. It, that's, that's the, if, as it were, the, in an odd way, the encouraging thing. It's always been impossible. But as we've discovered on this podcast, it didn't stop our pioneers saying, you know what, we're going to do that. And the result is the worldwide church that we know today and, and love. But the problem is the world's population has continued to grow by leaps and bounds. And so even though the ratio of people to Adventists today is lower than it's ever been, there are also more people alive today than there, have, than there ever were who've never even heard of Jesus, much less of the Seventh-day Sabbath and prophetic truth as told in Revelation 14. Let's talk about some of those stories of the pioneer uh, missionaries. So not only the pioneers that started the church, but those missionaries that have gone out and dedicated their lives to helping others far afield um, understand the times that we're living in and, and proclaim and help them to understand the three angels' messages. You know, you must prophesy again. You must prophesy again. They felt that calling within them. Where do we start today? Today we're going to look at the South Pacific, Sam, an area that we haven't looked at yet. But what we're going to be doing, uh, as we've done in the past, is to tell some stories about how missionaries suffered and gave their all that this message might go literally all around the world. Um, And unfortunately, in the early 20th century, the late 19th century, In many parts of the world, disease was rife, especially tropical areas where tropical diseases were common. And up until the 1930s, or even later in some cases, there just weren't good medical uh, cures in place to deal with a lot of these tropical diseases. So the chances to die were pretty high. The chances of those diseases. Absolutely, the chance the chance that you'd get sick was almost 100 percent, and the chance that you might die was sadly very high. So let's begin in 1894 with two missionaries called Julia and Joseph Caldwell. He was a doctor. They were both American missionaries, and they sailed on the mission ship Pitcairn on its third mission voyage. Now, we touched on the Pitcairn in our episode about Australia and how the church went to Australia and how the church, with the offerings of American church members, including Sabbath school offerings given by children, how they built this mission ship called the Pitcairn after Pitcairn Island. 
Um, on its third mission voyage, it carried jo Joseph and Julia Caldwell, and they landed at Rarotonga in the Cook Islands on October 9, 1894. Now, both of them were considerably gifted young people. Joseph was twice a doctor. He had both MD and PhD degrees, and he was also an ordained minister. But he himself praised Julia's sound judgment, as, she, as he called it, and she set up a mission school at Rarotonga. For six years, she taught there while Joseph provided medical care to the islanders. But by 1900, Julia was suffering badly from what was reported at the time simply as fever. And because the diseases weren't well understood, that's often the description you get in descriptions of Adventist missionaries suffering. They're just suffering from fever. Because fever was generally involved in any tropical disease, your yeah. body will react with raising its temperature and stopping your muscles from working as they normally right. do. So today, it's impossible to know what Julia was suffering from, but she was suffering badly from something. In February 1901, the Caldwell sailed for New Zealand, the nearest developed country where they hoped they could find a cure for Julia. But as Joseph himself grimly noted, it was too late. She was broken in health is how he describes it. She had several apparent recoveries and relapses, and then she went into a month-long final illness in which she suffered considerably. Her final words were, yes, thank the Lord, if you can imagine that. Oh, Lord. Yes, thank the Lord, which she spoke on March 1, 1902, when she died, worn out by the diseases that she suffered, but also by the privations of working in a very difficult mission station. Rarotonga, extremely hot and humid, um, not uh, a climate that was uh, terribly well suited to someone from America, probably. And also, they didn't have much money, so they, they, they suffered deprivation. And so she wore herself down and became vulnerable to this illness. And that, unfortunately, it was a common story. So once again, we have um, medical. Yes. We have education. Yeah. And we have ministry because he was a pastor as well. Yes. And you have this must have been brilliant PhD doctor pastor. Yes. <laughs> and his wife, whom he attributes a lot of wisdom to, and, and she's an educator herself, going to the mission field. This is 20 years after John Andrews yep. was sent to Europe. Exactly 20 years. And they're there for the rest of the decade, so about six years, six years. or so. Yeah, six years. Uh, which is a good amount of time. We talked about missionaries that were sick much sooner and, and died or, or went back much sooner than six years. That's right. You know, I, I remember some of the stories we talked in a podcast. It was like six months later. Yes, that's you know, right. And, and, and 18 months later, without, you know, being able to establish anything uh, solid, they were taken by either disease or what have you. And here we are. They dedicated their lives to this, it seems, for that period of time. And she falls ill. And even through all of this suffering, her final words were of gratitude to God. To God. I know. It's, it's humbling, isn't it? Where do you think that kind of faith comes from? Well, that's, that's the question, isn't it? I, I, think, I think myself that it partly was that there in Rarotonga as pioneer missionaries, they were probably thrown to rely completely on God. And they'd probably experienced miracles already. And so she had seen how God had worked. But how, you know, how in the midst of a final illness, as you know, you're never going to see your, your parents, your, your family members back in the homeland ever again, how you can still have that 
that that faith to, to, to offer gratitude to God is uh, is it's 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 humbling to me and inspiring. You know, it's like um, as the author of Hebrews discusses in Hebrews chapter eleven, of these we are not worthy. The trust that God was going to take care of their eternal destiny. Yes must have been at the heart of this in some way. Yes, right? yes. Because it's the belief that everything is going to work out in the end. And if it doesn't work out, it's because it's not the end. It's Right? And I think, after all, for even though they probably went with the hope that they would see Christ come again, they would have known there was the chance they were going to die. And whether it was after six years in the mission field or after 60 years, though they probably would have thought that Christ's coming was much closer than that, they would have known that there was... You know, in a sense, um, the next thing you're going to see is Christ coming in the clouds. But I think the gratitude perhaps comes because they had had that experience of being drawn closer to God and to Christ through their work in the mission field. And perhaps that's where the gratitude comes from. I, I, I have, can only speculate. The day-to-day -day of, of loving and serving and, and yes. helping and teaching. And, and in very healing. difficult circumstances where you can't pick up a phone and ask for more money to be cabled or wired overnight, yeah. um, where you're, you're thrown to depend entirely on God. Some people describe faith as a muscle that you practice. Mm. And if you, you practice with the weight that you're capable of, of lifting today, uh, but you're constantly putting yourself out in more and more circumstances where faith is needed, at some point, you get to this. Yes. Uh, it is often said that soldiers are not altruistic at the time of battle if they have not been sacrificing for others mm. for the rest of, for their lives before that. Mm. So at the moment where the battle rages, you find out what people are made of based on a thousand actions that they've done or 10,000 actions throughout their lives. And then yes. they're capable of doing this ultimate sacrifice, which is to throw yourself in front of bullets. Yeah. I find that to be the theme of faith in these missionary stories because you don't wake up one day and decide you're going to give it all to the mission field because no. of your love for Christ. Uh, th there is a progression there that we must acknowledge. Yes. So what happens to him afterwards? He goes back to the States, but I mean, he and Julia get replaced on the in the Cook Islands by Albert H. Piper and his wife Hester. She was known as Hetty. They're significant in Adventist history because they are the first Australian Adventist missionaries. Albert H. Piper and his wife Hetty. And again, go through you know that process. You know, we've just the current missionaries that are there. Um, she died. Who's next? Right. Right. And you have people signing up to carry on what right. they've done. This is miraculous. It is. And we're only talking about almost about 14 years approximately between the message, Adventist message arriving in Australia and the first Ad, Australian Adventist missionaries being willing to go out. 14 years, that's it. Yeah. And so the message has already taken root. They've seen, and they're still, at that point, they're still seeing American missionaries because there were still quite a number of American missionaries in Australia into the early 20th century. So they've seen that and they're saying, yes, we want to be part. We want to be part of this worldwide message and we want to do our part. What are their names again? Albert H. Piper and Hester or Hetty Piper. 
Okay. Um, first in a long line of Australian missionaries to go to the South Pacific and indeed to other parts of the world. They were both only 25 years old. Albert and Hetty uh, each 25 years old. They served in Rarotonga for nearly seven years. They had a brief furlough in Australia in 1905 when Albert was ordained and they could have chosen to remain there. But they didn't. They went back. Despite having knowing very well what Julia Caldwell had suffered, and Hetty contracted tuberculosis, and they returned to Australia in 1907, but her health never recovered. As it worsened, her two sons were sent to live with an aunt, and the younger son Lawrence wrote to his mother from the aunt's house and said, "Dear Mama, I will try to be such a good boy that if I not see you again on this earth, I will meet you when Jesus comes to take us home." So their children had this profound sense of the faith that they had. Absolutely. Because their parents were living it out. Absolutely. Hetty's last words were, I am so happy. <laughs> this is, if it didn't happen, it would be unbelievable. If it didn't, if it weren't true, it would be unbelievable. She died on June 1, 1912, aged just 37 years old. Having gone as a missionary as 25, she's dead by 37. But as you rightly say, has managed to inculcate her sons in the truth that they believe. Um, Albert Piper later goes on to be an extremely distinguished church leader in Australia, remarries. But uh, that those seven years in Rarotonga in the Cook Islands are extremely formative in his career. And yes, she dies declaring her happiness to be with Jesus. That is amazing. And the next thing she will see is Jesus. It's true. Whom she lived for. Yes. Now, meanwhile, in June 1902, the summer following Julia Caldwell's death, two young physicians had graduated from the American Medical Missionary College. That was in Battle Creek. That was the Adventist Church's first medical school. Okay. Eventually, we lose it because it goes with Battle Creek Sanitarium, which goes under the control of John Harvey Kellogg. And so Loma Linda University replaces the American Medical Missionary College. Originally, of course, it's called the College of Medical Evangelists. So Loma Linda is the replacement for the American Medical Missionary College. But that's the Adventist Church's first medical school. And its title tells you everything, the American Medical Missionary College. It's not just an ordinary medical school. It's training doctors to be missionaries. Absolutely. And this is what we see today is still the same heritage that Loma Linda has. Yes, it's, there's probably fewer today go as missionaries, but as we discovered in a recent podcast, there are still people who tra train at Loma Linda in order to go as medical missionaries around the world, as doctors, dentists, or physiotherapists, and, and so forth. Okay, so in 1902, yep, you've got these Sister two... Caldwell dies, and yes. uh, Dr. Caldwell goes back to the US. But two new physicians mm. come out. Alfred Vollmer and Maud Otis. And the following spring, Alfred accepted a call from the General Conference to serve at the Adventist Sanitarium in Samoa. Okay. Now, these are both doctors. They've both graduated from the medical, American Medical Missionary College. Um, it's possible that Alfred's call to Samoa was conditional on his being married. At that point, the church didn't like to send single men out to the mission field because it was thought that they would face temptation and it wouldn't be good for them. Interesting. Um, as we touched on in some earlier podcasts, the church was willing to send out single women. 
who went out as nurses. I'm not, I think there must be a little bit of the gender double standard involved there that they think <laughs> That's very interesting. that men are going to be tempted and, and, uh, and, it's, and women, it's, it's fine. And women, know. it's fine. They may get married there. It's okay too, but yeah. It's it, it, any rate. But so um, what we know is that as soon as they were called, um, they got married. He and Maud got married. Now, they may have meant to get married in any case, but it may be that he sort of had to look around and went to a friend and said, I've been called to go as a missionary. Would you like to come too? And by the way, be my wife. Uh, we don't quite know how. We know that with a lot of missionaries, they get married immediately before they go as missionaries. We know that that happens a lot. So whether it's because it's, it's a condition or whether it's because They've been planning to go as missionaries anyway, and they want to get married before they go out. But for whatever reason, so Alfred and Maud get married on July 14, 1903. He was 27. She was 24. That's July. In October, they sail for Samoa. Hmm. So August, less than three months later, they're on, they're on the ship sailing for Samoa. And what's in Samoa again? An Adventist sanitarium. So... Founded by Dr. Merritt G. Kellogg, who we talked about when we talked about the founding of the work on Australia. David, this level of entrepreneurship is remarkable, right? Here you have a, a, a movement that started in the U.S. And when they discovered that they could send missionaries, soon later they start establishing sanitariums, which become hospitals at some point and yes. all sorts of other things. Where did this fire and vision come from? That's a great question, and it's, I think it's partly American culture. 19th century and 20th and 21st century American culture is very entrepreneurial. Mm. Um, we know that James White was quite the entrepreneur, and he may have sort of set things. But I think it's, it's partly that American culture, but I think it's also um, that fire that comes from believing Christ is coming soon. And you've only got a limited amount of time to work in the world, so you've got to do everything you can as soon as possible there's not time to wait around and to reflect and to pause and to ponder too much. You've got to, you've got to get, get moving. But it's it is, a matter of life and death and, and eternal life and death at that. Absolutely. And so uh, this is why you see sanitariums being founded not only in the United States, but very quickly in South Africa, mm. in Australia, and indeed the, 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 the earliest one outside the United States was in Samoa. The church barely has a presence in Samoa, but it has a sanitarium in Samoa. Do you think that if we, if most Seventh-day Adventists today had this sense of urgency, things would look different? I think it would. And I think the sense of urgency is one of the things that is most lacking, at least in Western parts of the world. The Office of Archives, Statistics and Research oversees surveys of church members around the world. And one of the questions that we asked in the survey that's just a survey that's literally just been finished as we record this in the early summer of 2023, it will probably be broadcast in the late summer of 2023. But those surveys have just been finished being implemented around the world. And one of the questions is um, how much people believe that the Adventist church is God's special end time church with a, a special role to play in terms of prophecy. And we get very mixed responses to that. There's always a larger number of people who say they agree or strongly agree than, than disagree. 
but you get something of a, of a split. You don't get a very clear, unambiguous, as you do say for saying, I believe the seventh day is the Sabbath. There you get 90% plus strongly agreeing. Right. But in this, and I think... It's, it's a much lower. So I think that, that speaks to people having a little degree of uncertainty and, and a lack of urgency. I have uh, my experience as a local church pastor in London is that you had some people in the middle, but overall, some people had a sense that if I don't tell my cousin, if my neighbor does not know, if the person that I that I work with, my colleague, my friend, if they if they don't make a decision, they may be lost forever. That's it. And more specifically, if I don't do something to help them know they might be lost forever. And then you have the other group of people that are like, man, God loves everybody. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's going to be fine. If, if I don't tell them, God is going to find another way to tell them. In other words, their eternal destiny does not hang in the balance of my actions yes. or my church's actions. And my experience as a pastor is that this group here is gladly waiting for Jesus to come. And they're just you know, I, I'll just wait. We're going to be faithful. We're going to go to church. We're going to give our tithe and offering to maintain, you know, and uh, our focus. And, and yes, reach others. It's fun. But this group is the group that does more, that is mostly active, and that mostly gives. And incidentally, that is most interested in media and communication. Mm. Because if you believe that what you do may be the difference between eternal life and eternal death to somebody, then you're going to be very interested right. in media, in communication yep. ways, in ways of to communicate that to others. So this group here is not, does not have a sense of urgency. They're like, okay, Jesus will come and, and, and hopefully, you know, he will recreate the earth and may it come soon. Uh, this group is, I hope Jesus comes soon and until the last moment where we can, Let's proclaim. Right. And that was the case for the doctors, Volma. Okay. Alfred and, and Maud. Their daughter was born 10 months after they arrived in Samoa, born in September 1904. Um, and they loved working in Samoa, um, but they only worked there two years because Alfred, like Hetty Piper, contracted tuberculosis. And one of his friends wrote he, loved the work, wrote he loved the work in that field, and when he was compelled to leave on account of his health, it was with the deepest regret. So in October 1905, not quite two years after arriving in Samoa, Alfred was sent back to the States for treatment, and his wife and daughter went with him. He was very sick on the ship back, but he managed to survive until he got back and he had the chance to see his family. But... In February 15, 1906, eight days short of his 30th birthday, so he's still only 29 years old, Maud was left as a widow at the age of 27, and Dorothy was left an orphan at 18 months, the result of just 23 months of missionary service. So you talked earlier about how, well, at least the Cordwells, Caldwells were there for six years, the Pipers were there for seven years in the Cook Islands. In Samoa, they're not quite there two years, which is comes back to the other examples we were talking about from Africa right. and uh, the Caribbean, which also had very prevalent tropical diseases and where at times people died within a matter of months of arriving. But, you know, I don't think we should honor their sacrifice the less because somebody had to go. Mm -hmm. And I think there, I, I suspect that that was the attitude, that it was like, well, some of us have to go and some of us are going to die. 
but enough of us have to go that some will survive and can continue the work. And I haven't found anybody actually writing specifically in those terms, but then we don't actually have very vivid first-hand narratives from most of these people. But the fact that there is always somebody else willing to volunteer to go, something you touched on earlier, there's yeah. always the next person right. is there or the next missionary couple are there ready to go, to me suggests that there was an awareness, yes, people are going to die, so there have to be enough of us who go so that some can survive and some can spread this gospel. Do we have any evidence for how they reconciled God not healing them or allowing this to happen, even as they are responding to his call? It's interesting. You, you get some reflection of this in the obituaries that appear in church papers. And this, by the way, is an era when almost all church members did read church papers. So the fact that the obituaries are appearing, we know that people knew it was dangerous to go as a missionary because they're reading these stories. And at times it will say, people will say, you know, at times it's like the husband writing the obituary of the wife and was saying, I can't understand this. Or other people write back and say, we don't understand why this talented young person has been taken from us. But, you know, the, the, the usual ethos is God knows um, and God is doing what's best in his, in his sight. And also we, know, we knew that coming here was dangerous. Um, and we knew that God wouldn't necessarily heal all of us. So it's, at, at times there's a definite puzzlement, but usually what they immediately turn to in writing about the death of a, of a loved one or a colleague is the, is, to, is, to, is the hope, but also to say who will be next. So people even use the obituaries and as the notices as, as a missional recruiting tool. They, they will immediately pivot to say who is going to come up to lift up the banner that this beloved brother or sister has been forced to lay down, who's going to come up and lift it high? There's, there's nothing more Adventist than that, using <laughs> the victory as a mission call. Because it's, the tension here is the God who called you could have protected you two years later. So he called you to die in the mission field. And, and it, I find that from this pastoral question, because it's, 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 a, it's a pastoral question, um, one way that you could explore is, okay, God uh, needs to give me an answer as to why he did that. Yeah. The only place that I see people going if they consistently keep that track of questions is a dark forest with no way out. The other question is to ask the, the difficult at first, which is, is God still good? Mm. Having these circumstances, is God still good? And the, usually people end at the foot of the cross contemplating the sacrifice of Jesus as the ultimate sacrifice of the ultimately innocent God who died for us. Right. And between the dark forest and this, this is probably where you should end up. But it takes a phenomenal amount of faith. God understands loss because God suffered loss. His son died. And his ministry was only three and a half years before he was not, he did not fall to a disease. No. Uh, to the degree that, yeah, he fell to our own evil. Yes. Um, okay, what so, else? So the Volmers had been joined in Samoa by a woman called Sarah Moretta Young, and she was a native of Pitcairn Island. And she's a reminder that not every missionary who went or a missionary who died was from the United States or from Europe or indeed from Australia. 
So Sarah had graduated as a nurse from Sydney Sanitarium in 1903 and went to Samoa in May 1904. Just four months after Volma died, Sarah died of pneumonia. According to an Adventist physician who worked with her, he wrote, she was loved by all who knew her. And her last letter to friends that she wrote from Samoa on, in July 1906, so July 1st, so only two weeks before she died, she wrote, may more be found who are ready to say, here am I, send me. In the midst of suffering. She's, she's writing to friends saying, we need more people to say, to answer as I, she's quoting Isaiah, of yeah, course, yeah. to say, here am I, send me. She is saying, in fact, telling people, you need to say, I will go, in terms of the church's current strategic focus and its mantra of, I will go. That's what she's, because of course, yeah, Isaiah, of course. Isaiah says, I will I go, will and go. she's yeah. saying, you need to be saying, I will go. So she's saying that in the midst of suffering. And she died just uh, two years and two months after she joined the Samoa Sanitarium staff. But yes, again, it's even in this case, it's not pivoting from an obituary to a missional recruiting, but actually you, in the midst of your own suffering, trying to get somebody else out here to replace you. This is, you know... And serve elsewhere too. Episodes like this are both wonderful and terrible. Mm. You know, there is the, the wonder, there is the wonder of their faith and there is the morbidity of their experience. And, and we are in this tension now. It's like the, the, so much to be admired in the way that they sacrifice in their faith. And at the same time, the, you cannot help but feel the pain of, of not being able to, for them to serve more or even to live more because the mission service is what ended their lives. Yes. I mean, all, the, all of the pioneers died, right, with different degrees of service. They're all dead now. Yes. And, and we are now called to take this further. If Jesus doesn't come, we're going to die too, David, at some point. Right. But I am serving for many years, and I am feeling the blessing of that service for many years. Six months, nine months of this. Um, yeah, or, or, or even two years. This nurse, or two years. It's or, not very long. You know, and, and being and, and dying in the mission field. Um, and these are not exceptions, right? And right. You're looking at this, this tr transcript there. Where are these notes from? Okay, so these come from a book that I published in 2019 called A Living Sacrifice. Uh, it was published by Pacific Press, uh, A Living Sacrifice, and it is full of stories of missionaries who sacrificed and gave their all. Um, there is the first two thirds is about missionaries who died. The last third is about missionaries who gave their life in a different sense. They went and spent their entire life, many decades, in mission service. We'll add, we'll add the link to this. If people are watching on YouTube, we'll yes. add the link here. And we'll, we'll add the link in the show notes so that people can find the book themselves. Because I think people will be, it's a little chastening, but I think it's also inspiring and it is humbling. Indeed. So let's talk about another, another example, Hubert and Pearl Tolhurst. Hubert Tolhurst and Pearl Phillips, they were, they were students at the Australasian Missionary College, what today is Avondale University. In Australia. In Australia. They'd fallen in love as students and were married in January 1915. Hubert was 25, Pearl was 24. And within weeks of their wedding, here's another example, within weeks of their wedding, they set sail for the mission field. In this case, for the archipelago of Tonga, 
where they arrived in February 1915 to take charge of a mission station on an isolated island group. There are still people that go to Tonga for their honeymoon. <laughs> but, yeah, <laughs> but this would, this would be a very meaningful and very dangerous kind of honeymoon. Right. These days, people go to the South Pacific Islands for a, for an exotic holiday or indeed a honeymoon. It's 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 some it's going to be a trip of a lifetime, but in a good way. Yeah. Back <laughs> um, then, it was a trip of a lifetime. It was. Uh, but for mission. Three years later, church leaders in Australia received a message that, that as, as one wrote, Sister Tolhurst's health was failing, and they sent messages for the couple to return to Australia. But it was too late. She was already quite sick, and it's 1918, the global influenza epidemic reached Tonga. And both Hubert and Pearl caught influenza. And the problem is Pearl has already been weakened by these tropical diseases, so she has no resistance and no strength. And yet, as an obituary describes, they worked long hours ministering to the sick and stricken people before they succumbed themselves. So they died. Hubert lived. Hubert actually, lived. Hubert lived. She died from the pandemic of the last century. She felt she literally died in Hubert's arms, dying on March 14, 1919. She was just, she'd literally just turned 28 years old. So this is it, Sam. We're talking about young people. We're not talking about people who had had long careers. Um, we're talking about people who were very young and yet who were so bold, so willing to go out where they knew others had fallen. Um, it, it's an extraordinary... All of the people we've been describing were, were really quite young. Perhaps because they were young. Yes, right? very probably so. The fire of, of, of impacting the world and giving their best um, to a meaningful cause. Yes. And there is nothing more meaningful than proclaiming yeah. the second coming. That would motivate them. And Hubert has to, he's the only ordained minister on the island, so he has to conduct the funeral service for Pearl. And, you know, it's interesting, um, early 20th century, there were different, it was a different culture. People were a bit more of the stiff upper lip. You didn't let on about emotion, mm. still close to the Victorian era. Mm. But um, Hubert's anguish becomes ad evident in little points of detail because he writes the, uh, he has to write a life sketch for his wife that appears in the Australian church paper. And he writes, she suffered much knowing no bodily comfort for many weeks and often the cough was most distressing. And I just think that's the, that's the observation of a loved one who's, you know, a, a spouse who's very close and knows that the cough is most distressing. So that's about as, 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 as far as the emotion can go, but you get these little hints of a deeper anguish. And then as he himself writes, the writer had to conduct the funeral service. But that is, there's an interesting comparison there with another um, missionary couple who we'll talk about in a moment. But you did ask about how people greeted the news of the death of a loved one. And Pearl's parents um, greeted her death not so much stoically as with a sense of willing sacrifice. They wrote, it came as a great shock, but God's will be done. Our dear girl has fallen at her post, and we thank the dear Lord that he has seen fit to use her for a time in his cause. We feel deeply burdened about the work in Hapai, that's the island where they were, and will gladly release another of our girls if it will help till another worker is appointed, because they had several daughters. And 
This offer was actually taken up because Hubert fell in love with one of Pearl's sisters. And eventually the two were married in March 1921. And where do you think they went as missionaries? They went back to Tonga. Wow. Um, and they served there for the next 20 years. Fortunately, they, they survived. 20 years of service by this point is indeed the miracle, right? Yes, they, yes. They made it. Well, and you're getting into the 1920s, you're beginning to get slightly bet better medical care as well. But yes, I mean, the fact that um, I think the, what the parents write there is just almost awe-inspiring in its degree of faithfulness. Because they lost one daughter to this, and they're saying we will be willing to, to send another, yeah. which they do. God's will be done, and we thank the Lord that he has seen fit to use her for a time in his cause. That's the mentality. That's the Adventist approach of this generation. Um, not long before the Tollhurst were married, another pair of Avondale mission of Australasian missionary college students were married. Uh, again, often known as Avondale College, but its official title then was Australasian Missionary College. In late 1914, Norman Wiles volunteered to serve in what was then called the New Hebrides, today's nation of Vanuatu. Mm. But he was single and the Australasian Union Committee said, no, we're not going to send you out. But he had been friends at college with a woman called Alma Butts. She herself was the daughter of American missionaries who'd served in Pitcairn, Tonga, New Zealand, and Australia. And it was suggested that Norman marry Alma, and then they could both be sent. It was suggested. It was That's suggested. <laughs> Church leaders suggested. Church you leaders. You should talk more, and then you go to the mission. Show. That's exactly what happened. Well, Alma kept a diary, and she later wrote about this and said, I would not submit. I would not be bought or sold by committee action. <laughs> so it's like, I'm not going to have a committee telling me who I should get married to. And rightly so. And, and rightly so. But then her mother comes to see her. After she calls down her mother, the missionary herself comes and, and says, well, why don't you at least meet Norman? You know, think of the needs of the mission field and so forth. And so... Um, Alma recalled in her diary, she thought, we talked over the advisability and the future possibilities at some length. Norman never proposed in the usual way. We simply felt that if this was the action of the committee, the Lord was leading and that settled the matter. <laughs> <laughs> she must have liked him because she, she was I think she, adamant against it. And she, must have, she must have at least liked him, yes. But I mean, you can't imagine, that, that's, that's a different generation. You can't imagine anyone doing it today. That's, that, imagine the conversation. You know, at some point, they both agree, but they, maybe they don't want to tell each other that they agree. It's like, yes, I think the committee is yeah. probably a good idea. <laughs> love of God and love of mission gets put above romantic love. Hmm. But the thing is, they have a very happy married life together. So, you know, the story ends, in a sense, happily. Um, except that it doesn't because you can guess what's going to happen. They get married. Norman dies. They get married in December 1914 and in early 1915, they took a course in tropical medicine at the Sydney Sanitarium to equip themselves. And later that year, they sailed to the New Hebrides where they initially worked as part of a larger group of missionaries. But then they get sent to an island called Malakula where there is no Adventist presence and the the native people are known as cannibals. And this isn't just a, a myth. You know, there's, a, there's an awful lot of talk, oh, South Pacific Islanders are cannibals. Not all of them were cannibals, Sam. But these ones actually were. They actually had killed and eaten Europeans and each wow. other before. Um, 
and in 1916, a local chief apparently vowed to eat nothing until he had feasted on the flesh of a white man, and Norman was the only one available. But for the next two years, he and Alma won the local people over, learning their language and making friends, and there's a wonderful photo that we'll put in the video version of the podcast for those who are watching, which shows Norma and Alma sitting with a group of the local people, and they're sitting, they're clearly very relaxed, they feel like they're among friends. Um, but he could be eaten. But he wasn't. Wow. They've made, fr they've made friends with the local people. That's the extraordinary thing. So remember, they've gone there in, in, in 1915. By the end of 1917, Norman was suffering from repeated attacks of malaria. And so they get called back to Australia because even church leaders say, brother and sister Wiles have been working to the point of breaking down their health. So they brought them back to Australia to, to improve. Um, and they spent a couple of years in Australia working there. Norman worked as a pastor, but in January 1920, they returned to Malakula, something they were delighted to do. By April, they were receiving requests for Adventist teachers from tribes on the island that had never contacted Europeans before, and they'd won the trust of other tribes who turned to them to settle disputes and to broker peace wow. between tribes that had long-standing right. enmities. But then... May 1, 1920, Norman catch, catches blackwater fever. We've talked about this before. One of the most horrible uh, tropical diseases killed a number of Adventist missionaries. By the third, Alma's diary notes, Norman was vomiting all the time and suffering from chills. This would be the effect of the fever. By the fifth, Alma confided her anxiety to her diary. She said, hard as it all was, my father strengthened my faith so that I never once doubted, nor was my confidence in him shaken. Again and again I pled that if it could be to his honor and glory, my darling might be smared, spared me. But then she writes, God gave me the strength to add, thy will be done. Ooh. And at 10 p.m. on May 5, 1920, Norman died. Alma sponged down her husband's body, dressed it in a new shirt, and then covered his corpse in a linen shroud. And then friendly tribesmen came and helped her to dig the grave. And so, whereas Hubert Tolhurst had to conduct the funeral service for his wife, Alma has to literally bury her husband. And what does she do afterwards? That's the amazing thing. After Norman's death, she went back to Australia. She became a nurse at Sydney Sanitarium. But then she later went to the United States. In 1934, she went as a missionary to Papua New Guinea, not far from Vanuatu. She served there for seven years until she had to leave because of the outbreak of World War II. She spent the next 18 years in Australia, but Sam, in November 1959, age 65, she volunteered to serve as a missionary in Nigeria no and way. spent three years of mission service as head of the midwife's training program at Ile Ife Hospital in Nigeria. So That's amazing. She, her willingness to serve is very far from shaken by this horrible experience. Um, I presume they didn't have any children in that. They time. didn't have any children, no. So she, she, and she never, re, she never remarried, which speaks to how successful the marriage must have been. Yeah. So there's some examples of missionary suffering that helped lay the foundations of the church in the South Pacific. As you know, Sam, and some of our listeners or viewers will know, but many won't, the South Pacific is one of the most Adventist parts of the world. There's an Adventist prime minister in Papua New Guinea. There have been Adventist members of parliament and government leaders in many South Pacific islands. 
What made that possible? It was the willingness of people, including very young people, to go there and serve knowing that they might face death and that they certainly would face serious illness. Without that sacrifice, we wouldn't have the church we have today. I don't think it was unique to that generation. I think you will find in, in real numbers, perhaps not the ratio, but in real numbers, many more young Seventh-day Adventists today compared to the real numbers that there were back then who, are, who would be willing to sacrifice in a similar way. And others to different degrees, of course, uh, but those sacrifices are not needed in the same way. Medicine has moved That's on, right. thankfully. And, That's right. Uh, but there's still, still obviously some level of sacrifice. And we are told to prophesy again. We are told to many nations, kindreds, tongues, and peoples. As uh, we have one of our vice presidents here at the General Conference, Billy Biaggi, I've been listening to him for many years, and he keeps a counter on how many, what's the world population. Mm. And every prayer, if you listen closely, he mentions the number. So mm. right now it's 8 billion. We need to reach 8 billion people. And I know that in a few months it will move to 8.1. Uh, but he has that, that very clear vision of, of we need to reach every human being alive who needs to hear that Jesus Christ is coming. And I don't, which is the same feeling they had back then, Amen. even to the most remote villages of the Pacific, even if the sacrifice is with our own lives, we will go and we will do it. Yes. So hopefully we will find opportunities for young people today to continue that sacrifice for the same reason and purpose. How long will it take for Jesus to come? No one knows, but that's precisely the point. Uh, we continue so many years on with the same level of commitment. Yes. And we hope that this stor these stories have inspired you to recommit yourselves to the mission of the Seventh-day Adventist Church. Thanks again for joining us in Mission 150. Please keep watching on Adventist Review TV on the Seventh-day Adventist Church's YouTube channel or listening on your favorite podcast platform. And if you've enjoyed this episode, please share it with your friends. Please like it and share it. If you want to know more about Adventist missionary work and missionaries today, go to AdventistMission.org. And if you want to find out about mission opportunities today, go to VividFaith.com. We'll be back next week with more on the inspiring history of Adventist mission around the world. See you then.